You're listening to Sermons at High Peak. You know, as you uh, look out, I love every morning when I wake up and go out into the world, and the world around us looks so beautiful. Uh, I remember uh, we were on a, a trip with the the senior adults going driving through the, the mountains to see the leaves. And I remember coming back, and something you said, Wayne, because you were driving the van, you said, you know, I'd rather live here than anywhere because it's the most beautiful place. And uh, I just remember that. And I thought, you know, that's right. We, we are fortunate and blessed to live where we live. We see so much beauty around us. And um, when you think about God's glory, one of the first things that pops into our minds is often His creation, isn't it? I've asked this question many times as a pastor in discussion groups, in Bible studies. What reminds you the the most of the glory of God? And it's often God's creation. Or I say, what would you like to praise the Lord for? And a lot of times people praise the Lord for His creation. We think about it, we look at it, and we see it. It's one of the most amazing things. You think about where you've been in the world. A lot of you have traveled more than I have. Where are some of the most beautiful places in the world that you remember being at? And I've told you this before. One of the most beautiful places that I've ever seen is Duluth, Minnesota. Believe it or not. Because you look out onto Lake Superior and it's very high up. And you can see on a very clear day all the way into Canada on one side of the lake. And all the way into Michigan on the other side. Because it's very high up. And that's such a beautiful sight to see, the lake up there. Lake Superior, one of the largest lakes in the world, looks like an ocean that's very calm. But I think about that, and I think of other examples of God's glory in creation. For example, here's something I learned this week. Unlike apes, we have arched feet, right? Unless you've got a problem with your arches. Believe it or not, that's an ingenious design of our Creator. Arched feet. You say, well, why? Well, you know, they always compare us to the apes. They say we're just like the apes. But here's one way that we definitely are not like the apes because they don't have arched feet. They have flat feet. And because of that, they struggle at standing upright. Have you ever noticed when an ape wants to go very fast, he's not doing it upright? He's down, hunched over, and pulling at the earth because he essentially has four hands. Now, his feet are different than his front hands, but they're different. And they can't propel him forward fast enough. But because we have arched feet and the design of them, we're able to stand up and lean over and move quickly. Now, maybe we don't move as quickly as an ape. I guarantee I've never moved as quickly as an ape. But the fact is, because of how he created our feet, if it had been slightly off one way or the other, it wouldn't have worked. And we would not have survived as a species. So for us to say that that's an act of evolution, it evolved into that, no. Because if it had evolved from what apes have to what humans have, it wouldn't have worked. And we would have died out as a species. Here's this quote that I read from a, a, 
a scientist who believes in intelligent design. He said, the arch structure of the human foot is a perfect design for giving humans upright mobility. In contrast to humans, apes have very flexible feet that are effectively a second pair of hands for gripping branches. In consequence, apes have very little abilities for two-legged standing, walking, and running. Now, it's hard to believe that just that one slight little change and it couldn't have come by evolution because it's a part of God's intelligent design. Creation, though, I want you to see this morning, was just God's opening act of glory. It was just the beginning of showing His glory. Because in reality, when you look at all of history, we see far more than just creation. And actually, we see far more glory in God. By our mere existence as believers in Jesus Christ. And I want to answer this question. What is God's greatest source of glory? And to do that, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 20 and 21 this morning of Ephesians chapter 3. And when you find that in your copy of God's Word, would you please stand as we read these two short verses. Looking at the idea of what is God's greatest Source of glory. He's been talking about things like uh, how you know you come before the Lord and in your prayer He's been praying for the church and the things He's been praying for would bring glory in the church. And then He says this in verse 20. After talking about Christ's love in verse 19, He says, Now, to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask, or think according to the power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To Him who is able be glory in the church. You may be seated. Who's the Him here? Well, it's obviously God. We're talking about the Lord. We're talking about, really, the Christ part of the Godhead. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if anybody ever tells you they understand perfectly how the Trinity works, they're lying. No one does. But why would you ever want a God that you fully understand? If you could fully understand God, He wouldn't be God. (laughs) Because by definition, a God has to be superior to us, far greater than we are. But this idea of the Trinity, it's God. Uh, There's lots of different ways to think about it. But in this case, this is Christ acting and it's bringing God glory in a miraculous and wonderful way. How do we see the glory of God in Christ? God's glory is shown to us in Jesus Christ. His true glory comes from His plan of redemption. Yes, creation's a beautiful thing. And in fact, creation points to this fact. Creation actually speaks to the redemptive plan of history. There are lots of examples of that. But but God's glory is seen in His plan of redemption. His plan began from the very beginning of time when He created Adam and Eve in the garden and they sinned. The necessity of this plan started off at the very beginning. I don't know how many days it was between the time that He breathed breath into the lungs of Adam that Adam and Eve sinned. But however long it was, it was awfully short compared to all of history, right? So from the very beginning, there was a necessity of God's redemption. God's 
winning us back into a right relationship with Him. Redemption is essentially buying a person back after they've given their life over to Satan. And He does it through the blood of Christ. Jesus paid it all. And all to Him I owe. Well, you know what? He did it because He loves us and it brings the glory that we see in redemption to to God. And so when you see that, look again at at verse uh, 21 here. It says, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. We see God's glory in Jesus. And so if we see uh, God's glory in Jesus, how does that glory work? Well, because of sin, sin was brought into the world. And the whole Old Testament is pointing to the person of Jesus, the necessity of Him. He made a set of laws and He made a set of sacrifices and worked through the nation of Israel. And all of that proved one thing, that people couldn't win their salvation on their own goodness or their works. There's nothing you and I can do to win our salvation. There are lots of religions out there who try to win their salvation. There are even some Christians who believe in theology that says that unless you maintain your goodness, you will lose your salvation. That's essentially working your way into heaven. It still works, whether it's to win the salvation or to maintain the salvation. It still works, and it doesn't work. Works don't work. The fact is, Jesus Christ works, and that brings glory to God because He was willing And so from the beginning of time, God set in motion His redemptive plan. When Jesus came, we saw the glory of God literally face to face. Those who were fortunate enough to live during that time saw Him. His disciples and even His enemies saw the face of God. The moment He was born to the day that He left in His ascension. That is recorded at the end of Matthew and also in Acts. But you know what? We're still waiting to see The climax of this redemptive story. It's all leading to a point. A moment. When Jesus Christ will come again. And we thought the coming of Christ the first time was great. You think the resurrection of Jesus was a climax. No, that was just an initial climax. The greatest event in history will be when Jesus returns. And that will bring intense and amazing glory because you know when when jesus rose from the dead enemies still tried to silence the the message and for two thousand years since people have been trying to shut christians up shut us down keep the bible from being passed around and shared but when jesus christ comes back you know what's going to happen every knee will bow And every tongue will confess. And Jesus Christ will be glorified by every person and part of creation. That's going to be the real climax. You know, you think about Christ coming as a humble little baby. And just a handful of people knew about it at first. Yes, the message has gotten around. So now billions know. But one day, every person that is alive on earth will know that Jesus is Lord. So we see that Christ brings glory. But you know what else we see in this? We see that the church brings God's glory. God's glory is seen in the church. Some people think today that God's glory is tarnished in the church. But I want you to know that no, it isn't. Yes, churches are made up of failing people. People who make mistakes. But that was all part of the plan. God said, you know what I'm going to do with all these sinners? I'm going to get them together. 
And I'm going to pack them in rooms where they can listen to the gospel. And then I'm going to inspire them to go out so they can share the gospel. And you think, well, why would he want a bunch of sinners together? So that they can have their sins forgiven. So they can hear the gospel message. And we don't just do it here in church. If the only time the gospel was preached in this world was in church, we would be in a world of hurt. By the way, (laughs) that's one of the tarnishes that some people think are on the church today. Because a lot of Christians don't ever share the gospel. Billy Graham used to say when he was alive that it might be 10% of Christians. I heard a recent uh, person who, who has done some study and research on it uh, through Lifeway. And, and they say that it's probably more like about 2% of Christians in the Baptist church actually witness and tell people how to come to know Jesus Christ. So think about it. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, have you ever told someone the gospel And when was the last time you did it? If you don't say sometime in the last year, then you're part of that problem. You're tarnishing the glory of God. But God's glory will still be seen in the church. But the amazing thing about it, as as we look at the people who make up the church, we're imperfect. We make mistakes. I mean, I just look at my own life. I'm not even talking about all of you sinners. I'm talking about this sinner. And God had no other plan than to use his church. That's his plan. That's it. It's his one and only. And I want you to know he's going to make that plan work out. It's amazing to me when I look at these huge building projects that you see. I'm not just talking about building a large house or a large building. I'm talking about something immense and enormous. Over in Hong Kong, there is a great Buddha shrine. And isn't it sad that they'd go to all that effort to build a shrine to a dead guy so people can worship a dead person? Even the Buddhists don't believe that the Buddha is alive. There's a group of Buddhists who think that he gets reincarnated in a different body every, uh, so every few decades or so. But, but the, the fact is they've built this thing, but they wanted people to see it. And so they began to build what they call the, the Nong Ping cable car. And they started building this thing, and part of the plan, you know, they had all these plans, and it's an immense project to send these cable cars miles up to this Buddha shrine because it's so hard to get to. Originally, the Buddhists said, you know, it's part of the the ritual of climbing it and suffering to get up to it. But, you know, ordinary people wanted to see it, and they saw it as a way to make some money. So at the foot of the, the string, there's a town that's kind of popped up, and they make lots of money by selling touristy kind of stuff, you know, relating to the Buddha. And they built this cable car. And when they planned out this cable car, they made one mistake. They never thought that this cable car might have problems (laughs) and stop working. And so they didn't have a plan to rescue people. And on the initial uh, time, the first time someone said, hit the switch, and it started going, there was a problem. And there were a group of workers that were riding in one of the cars and they were up about halfway or so or maybe two-thirds of the way and the cable car just stopped. And the line wouldn't work and they couldn't get it going. And they couldn't figure out how to get it up there because they didn't have a plan. There was no backup plan. And you and I look at that and we think, well, what, what foolishness. How could you not have a backup plan? I mean, you know, those kinds of things often fail, right? Yeah, because they're made by human beings. But you know who created the idea and the institution of the church? The creator of the world. 
And we look at the church and you sometimes think, man, why wasn't there a backup plan? I mean, why doesn't God just send Jesus and have Him show up all of a sudden on the, the scene and, and go on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and, and all the other news channels and just broadcast to the world that He is real? And the answer is because He did that once, maybe not on modern media like we do, and people still rejected Him. And so he had a plan. He said, you know, people living a life in relationship to Christ will draw people to me. And he created the church. And then he promised something. He said, the gates of hell will never prevail against her. In other words, God knows that people are imperfect, but he also knows that he will never allow the church to fail at its plan. We might go in an ebb and flow of effectiveness. There might be times of down and times of up. It seems to me that in America today we are in a time of down. But you know there are other parts of the world where the church is flourishing. In the Middle East. In parts of China. In parts of Africa and South America. In fact when you count the continents. On half of them the church is flourishing right now. Growing. Hand over like crazy. I mean, just just growing like crazy. It's in the Western culture that it's not doing well. Oh, and by the way, maybe on Antarctica. We see God's glory in Christ. And because Christ is the head of the church, we see God's glory in the church. And He will never let that plan fail. And the next thing, we see God's glory in His actions on our behalf. We see God's glory in His actions performed, done for us, His church. We reflect the glory of God when Christ works in and through us. But it's only when Christ works. You and I, anytime we try to do it of our own power and our own strength, we will likely fail. But it will not bring God glory. But when we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, He works. Look at verse 20 of this passage. It says, now him who is able, by the word that term able, uh, think of it as in powerful enough. He's got the authority. He is strong enough. He is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That power comes from him. So you see, it begins with the idea of power and ability. And the verse ends with the idea of power and ability. And sandwiched in between those two things is our prayer for God to work through that power and ability. Did you see that? In the middle of His power is our prayer. How many of us are praying, seeking the glory of God? As Paul is dictating this letter, I just sort of imagine, you know, he usually wrote through what he called an amanuensis, secretary, someone who would write down the terms and the words. Some people think the amanuensis had a little more uh, influence in the wording. Others think, no, that was just a dictation, word for word, it doesn't matter. God inspired it, so it's still God's word. But it's like he stopped there and he said, uh, he said in verse 20, Now to him who is able to, to do, and imagine if he had just stopped there, to do all that we ask. But then it's like he had a thought. Wait a minute. No, to him who is able to do above all that we ask. No, wait, it's even bigger than that. He's able to do not only above, but beyond all that we ask. It gets more amazing. And as I look at those three phrases there, first of all, it's just what we ask. Now, I don't know about you. 
I really don't love asking people for things, especially if it's for me. I mean, I just I get uncomfortable about that, and I'd, I'd rather avoid it, which means I often would rather do things on my own that I really shouldn't because I could use some help. And so it's a problem that I have. Sometimes I've, I've overcome it, especially as a pastor. A pastor, you're often asked to ask people to do things. But uh, if it's for the church, it's a lot easier. But if it's for me, it's harder. And so have you ever had that feeling? You're afraid to ask for something? You sort of have a fear like they're going to reject it or they're going to feel bad about you. Maybe that's it's maybe it's a self-centered kind of uh, arrogance and pride in a weird way. But a lot of Christians, I think, are afraid to ask God. You're afraid to ask. Why? Well, we don't want our feelings hurt because in the past we've prayed out of God's will and so it didn't happen. We prayed for things that weren't God's will and we don't want to be rejected by Him. But that doesn't mean you quit asking. God wants us to seek Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. He wants us to seek the relationship first and the kingdom of God first. And He'll take care of all the needs. And so He says, I can do more than you can even ask. You say, well, I'm afraid to ask. Don't be afraid. God loves you. And He wants to do for you in His will. But then we think about He's able to do more than we even think to ask about. It's not that we're afraid to ask. There are some, thing, some things we didn't even know we could ask for help. Have you ever heard that phrase? You know, I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> Sometimes people will say that. It's that. They didn't even imagine that this circumstance would ever even exist. That they could ask to God to do that. I didn't even realize I could ask for that thing. And God says there's lots of stuff like that that you don't even imagine that I want to do to work in your life. And then the third thing, he says, it's, uh, uh, does all this, <clears throat> all this is necessary for the church to receive God's glory. Why? Because he wants us to seek his glory. He wants to work through us. And so when we ask, he says, I'll do above and even beyond all that you can imagine. I'll do above that you what you want to ask. You say, that's just too much. I shouldn't bother God with that. Or I can't even imagine what He might want me to do. I can't imagine that God would ever want uh, me to, to witness to 30 people who get saved in a year's time. Wow. Now that'd be a big request, wouldn't it? But wouldn't that bring God a lot of glory? If you started being a soul-winning, crazy person, you'd, every chance you got, you asked people if they wanted to receive Jesus Christ. That's above and beyond maybe all you would imagine asking. And yet God wants to work because He wants to bring glory. And the more you pray in uh, a way that, that is um, uh, risky and dangerous, but in God's will, the more glory you bring to God as a result of it. And then the fourth thing I see in this is remember this. We see God's glory in Christ and His church and the way he works in the church. But we also see God's glory for our generation. For the people we are alive with. You realize every single generation has a responsibility to show the glory of God. Every single generation. If, ever, if one generation ever quit showing the glory of God, the whole plan would fall on its face. There's just one chink that could destroy the whole chain. But you know what? God wants to work, and He does work in every generation. 
God always gets His glory. I say that all the time. You know, when COVID started last night, last year, I was just praying, Lord, show us your glory because you always do. And I think we saw ways that he showed us his glory. Well, he wants to show his glory through you to your generation. So uh, uh, the older folks that are here, you know, it's our job uh, if we're over the age of 50 to show the glory of God. Uh, the middle-aged people, you know, who are under that age of 50, but, you know, they're well into their life, into their mid to late 30s. It's your job to show the glory of God. Younger people, just getting started in adulthood. It's your job to show the glory of God. Teenagers, it's your job to show the glory of God. Children, it's their job to show the glory of God. Every generation. And by the way, we pass it down to the next. One of the things that scares me the most is I see the youngest generations falling away faster than they ever have before. I remember when I was a kid, a teenager, and we had a kind of a, we we didn't call it homecoming in my home church in, in Milwaukee. Northwest Baptist Church had Founders Day, I think is what we called it. And, you know, the church was fairly young at the time. So this was in the early 80s and the church was formed in the late 50s. And uh, by the way, one of the very first Baptist churches in the state of Wisconsin. Hard to believe that, isn't it? <laughs> when you imagine that my former church was formed in, in 1773. <laughs> but it was. Northwest Baptist Church of Milwaukee was one of the first Baptist churches in the state of Wisconsin. And we had this thing, and, and there were lots of slides. People had brought pictures and slides and had a slideshow showing all these uh, different activities of the church, you know, when it first found, was founded, the building of it. And then there was a huge youth group of about 75 people in the late 60s and early 70s. You know, and they all looked like hippies and stuff. It was the Jesus movement, right? And some of that was coming into the church. So a lot of long-haired boys, and that's come back again, by the way. But at that time, the 80s, you know, you didn't have as many long-haired boys in the 80s. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was strange to see that. And I remember my mom asking this question, where did all these kids go? See, now my youth group, we had about 30 kids in my youth group at Northwest Baptist Church. We had about 300 people that came to that church. But it went from 60 down to about 30, and then down to near nothing. And it's very sad, because the young people are falling away faster than ever before. And I know one of the reasons is because they're selfish and they want their kind of music. And sorry, young people, if you don't like me saying that. But, you know, that's a part of it. And so, you know, churches get older, and they are more traditional in their worship, and it's harder to reach young people with older-style music. So I don't know, maybe we need to go out and reach older folks if that's what we've got, if that's the talent we've got. But the fact is, it's our job to reach every generation of the church. And I'm fearful that we're losing the current generation that's coming into adulthood. And if we don't do something, we will lose the church in this country. And it will not be flourishing like it is in other parts of the world. But we want to see the glory of God. And so imagine history as an art show. You ever been to an art show? In college, we had to go to 12 uh, what they called co-curriculum activities. And sometimes they were worship services, and sometimes they were concerts. And there was one thing that everybody loved because it was the art exhibit. Because what you did is you walked in the art building to the art exhibit room, and they had a little sign. You signed your name, and you walk out, and you got credit. 
Now, some of us, we said, well, that's not fair. We ought to do a little more. And so we did this. Oh, that's a nice picture. Oh, look at that one over there. Oh, cool sculpture. All right, let's go to the cafeteria and eat. (laughs) So we actually walked around a little bit, you know, to see some of it. But I want you to imagine an art exhibit. In every period of history, you see God's glory in it. It begins with creation. And maybe the art exhibit is seven days, seven different ways of representing God's creation. And then on that seventh day would be a much larger exhibit, maybe even a sculpture of a man and a woman. And then you go forward a little bit and you start to see the sculptures or or art exhibit, uh, art paintings or whatever, drawings of, of the things that have happened in the Bible that brought God glory. The great flood. The uh, ways that God worked through Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. The great famine in Egypt that brought the people down to Egypt. And then the Exodus. And maybe you'd see a parting of a Red Sea painting. And so every single generation, you're seeing God's glory. And it continues on until you get to the days of Jesus. And you see maybe an exhibit that shows all of the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. That would maybe have its own room all by itself. And then maybe the culmination of that one would be the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you keep on going and you walk over to the next room or the next art exhibit and you see the early church and then you see the Middle Ages and you see how the Christians are are starting to, to take almost dominant control over the Roman Empire. And you see the Emperor Constantine baptizing his troops Again, whether it was sincere or not, I don't know. But he did it because Christianity had become the dominant force in the Roman Empire. And you continue on. And you see the first missionaries going to places like India and China. Maybe in our history you'd see Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong as Baptists. Two great missionaries of our culture as Southern Baptists. And then it comes forward to today. And there's an art exhibit, a room, that's dedicated to High Peak Baptist Church. And we see the glory of God. Oh, I can think of lots of stories that we could put art exhibits in the glory of this church. The founding of it, this group of people came over from the Enon Church and wanted to have a church in this community. You know, and I could see little Nellie Pruitt sitting on the pew that second Sunday as she liked to tell me, She said, I missed that first one, but I was there the second Sunday. (laughs) And you know, all of those different stories, many of you would be featured in some of those stories. My question of this to you is this. There's a whole wall dedicated to the 2020s. What will that look like? If you've ever been to an art exhibit, sometimes you see that there's just a painting or two on one wall. It almost looks empty. Kind of pitiful, to be honest with you. Or if you're like me, you don't really like modern art. You look at some of the paintings and you go, that's ugly. Let me ask you this. What will the art exhibit look like for the 2020s of High Peak Baptist Church? Will it be sparse with very little bringing glory to God or will it be filled 
Oh, we've got another one to hang. We don't have room for that one. There's just so much here. I sure hope it's the latter. I sure hope we're showing God's glory in so many different ways that we don't have room for it all. It's not just numbers. It's changed lives. It's the way God works through you. That's the final thing I want you to see. That God's glory can be shown in your life. Through you. In your dedication and commitment to following Jesus Christ. The problem is sometimes we don't trust God enough to show Him our glory, His glory. Sometimes we don't see the vision. We don't understand what He wants to do through us. Sometimes we just can't dream dreams anymore. We've gotten so set in our ways. We just keep following the same patterns. You know, I think that's one of the things COVID-19 might have done. It might have shaken up the church and said, you can't just keep doing it the way you've been doing it. Something has to change if you're going to flourish. But I know this. I know that if we are obedient to Jesus Christ, God will get glory in the church. God will receive glory through this church. Are you ready? You ready to make that commitment to obey, to follow Christ, to go wherever He calls you to go, to do whatever He asks you to do, and to give up whatever gets in the way of those first two? You hear me say that all the time because that's the essence of obedience. To go wherever He wants you to go. Do whatever He asks you to do. And to get rid of whatever gets in the way of those first two. Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. And if God has really spoken to you through this message, please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us. Or if you want, you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook, searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.